Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today for this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with our experts and discuss what is currently top of the mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Renee Robinson, and I will be hosting today's episode focused on pharmacogenomics of mental health medication therapy. I would like to start by introducing our guests. Jared? So my name is Jared Barrett. I'm an associate professor at Idaho State University on the Pocatello campus, and I've been involved in pharmacogenomics as an instructor of uh, the pharmacogenomics elective offered at Idaho State University, and I do a lot of personalized medicine in cancer. My name is Delaney Fisher. I'm a PharmD candidate for 2024 from Idaho State University on the Pocatello campus. Currently a P3 student, and I also received certification through Dr. Barrett's pharmacogenomics course. Hi, everyone. My name is Corwin Teresa Corrin. Um, like Delaney and Jennifer, I am also a PharmD candidate for 2024 from Idaho State University, and I have also received their certificate for pharmacogenomics and have taken pharmacogenomics course with uh, from Dr. Barrett. And my name is Jennifer Garrett. I am an Idaho State University PharmCD PharmD candidate from Idaho State University. I have taken Dr. Barrett's pharmacogenomics course and have been certified in pharmacogenomics. Hi, my name is Mary Cutright, and I am also a PharmD candidate for 2024. I have also done the certification program for pharmacogenomics and look forward to the rest of this discussion. My name is Mary Spadafore. I am a pharmacy student up here actually in the Anchorage campus at ISU, um, and excited to be here with you guys today. My name is Seth Bodine. I'm also on the Anchorage campus, um, PharmD candidate 2025. I completed my Bachelor's of Science at University of Alaska Anchorage, uh, primarily focused on natural science with an emphasis on uh, viral genomics. So welcome. So, I'm so excited to have such an excited and um, a knowledgeable group here today to talk with us. So let's jump right in. So one of the clinical areas that seems to have a growing voice for the need of pharmacogenomics testing are patients that we care for who have mental health disorders. Mary, can you tell me why is pharmacogenetics so important in this patient population? Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having us here today. Uh, this topic is so novel to us pharmacists. And what was so unavailable to the public is now becoming so accessible, as Jennifer will uh, later cover in this discussion. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide, and it affects millions of individuals. And despite the availability of multiple antidepressant medications, only one-third of patients respond to treatment. Pharmacogenomic testing facilities, which assist in precision medicine, improves medication selection and dosing in treatment of depression, which ultimately leads to improvement of patient outcomes. Not only does this customize therapy for the patient, but it might also save the time, the money, and follow-ups and any changes in therapy that happen thereafter. Um, it does take weeks to see any improvements in mood. And this is important because the common black box warning for antidepressant is suicide ideation. It has been theorized that this increase in suicide ideation could be due to the medication not working quick enough. So patients living with mental health disorders continue their spiral of despair 
with the thought that maybe not even medication could help them. With this targeted therapy method, we could also potentially reach therapeutic goals much sooner and help these patients, this patient population. Thank you so much, Mary. Um, so access is always an important topic. We can have all these tests, but if they aren't affordable or accessible to the average person, they might not really reach the people who need them most. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the market looks like for pharmacogenomic testing and the feasibility for a patient to actually afford these tests? Jennifer? Absolutely. Access and affordability are critical considerations when it comes to any healthcare intervention. Pharmacogenomics testing is no exception. Genetic testing abilities are rapidly evolving, not as quite as rapid as TikTok trends, but in terms of healthcare standards, it's moving very quickly. Costs, like many things, depend on many different factors the specific test, the laboratory site, the sample collection type, and whether or not it's covered by your insurance. One huge benefit that's come from the rapid evolution is the cost of the tests has decreased dramatically in, in the recent years. Think about the cost difference in terms of either buying a Kawasaki Ninja street bike versus buying a Walmart mountain bike. What was once previously a huge financial barrier has become so much more affordable. We have seen Medicaid, Medicare, and even some insurance companies covering the pharmacogenomic tests because it is proven to reduce the costs in the long run. As always, with most healthcare expenses, there are always financial assistant programs, some of them offered by the laboratories and patient advocacy groups. In terms of feasibility, the proximity of the testing facilities has changed as well. Most labs have been establishing in our local communities. They're in clinics now. Access to testing is more convenient than ever. You couple that with the confidence of local providers being able to get involved. It helps put the patients at ease. And let's say that you don't have a lab close. There are the at-home DNA testing kits like 23andMe, Genlex, LabCorp. These tests can be purchased online and then shipped out for interpretations. With the increased access to the tests and the demand, individual therapy is getting better. The cost and the feasibility are going down. Feasibility to have them is going up. It will continue to improve the benefits for our patients, ultimately revolutionizing the way we approach personalized medicine. Thank you, Jennifer. So Dr. Barrett, how is pharmacogenomics currently used to tailor current medication therapies? Kind of where in practice um, is pharmacogenomics being considered? You know, maybe is it preemptive or treatment failures? What do you think? So that's a great question, Renee. And first, there's not one standard way of doing pharmacogenomic testing. However, the end result should be the same in which it is tailoring or personalizing that medication therapy for that patient. There are several institutions and advocacy groups that have implemented a preemptive testing model. And in the long run, like what Jennifer uh, said earlier, that are demonstrating significant health benefits and cost-saving cost benefits. Two great examples of preemptive pharmacogenomic testing are seen with the Vanderbilt University Medical Center and their PREDICT program. 
and the other is the teacher's retirement system in the state of Kentucky. Both are seeing decreased hospitalizations and doctor's visits, which is driving down the cost of health care. In terms of mental health, though, the Veterans Affairs Healthcare System performed a clinical study comparing the outcome of patients whose pharmacogenomic testing was made available to providers. And while the other group's pharmacogenomic information was withheld, the patients whose providers used pharmacogenomic testing results decreased the inaccuracy of prescribing a bad medication by almost half. And the outcomes for the patients showed dramatic improvement in things like depression remission, depression response, and symptom improvement. And as stated earlier, the pharmacogenomic testing is accessible to everyone, whether that's through local sequencing services within a healthcare system or through the direct-to-consumer sequencing kits or one of the nationally accredited sequencing centers. And the more we can shift to a preemptive testing, the more beneficial these services will be. So let's focus and maybe narrow our focus a little and talk about some commonly used mental health medications in the treatment. Corwin, what are the, co the most common CYP enzymes involved in antidepressant pharmacogenomics? And what do you think are their significance? Yeah, that's definitely a great question. And before I get to the seed enzymes, I want to lay a little bit of background on why this happened and how they play into the metabolism um, of the medication in our body. So um, as Mary has mentioned, only one third of our patients respond to treatment. And there are multiple reasons on why we see so many variation in the response. Um, one of the big biggest factors that we know of is in the way that our body metabolizes these medications. And one of the key um, things in our body metabolism is our gene variation. So gene variation can play a significant role in our ability to break down and absorb these medications. And the way we dose most medications currently um, is made, the dosing is made based on the characteristic of the majority of the population. So what works best for most population. But what we do need to take into account, especially for antidepressant medication is over 90% of our population possess a genetic variation in one of the primary isoenzymes or CYP enzymes that result in impacts on their drug metabolism. So now we can have patients in just about three different groups. So we have patients who we refer to them as normal metabolizer who metabolize the medication at the rate we expect them to. And there are patients at one end of the spectrum who we refer to them as rapid or ultra-rapid metabolizer. And in these group of patients, um, their bodies can rapidly metabolize the medication at a much greater rate compared to normal metabolizers. And um, this can result in medication concentration not reaching the appropriate therapeutic level in their body, and that can lead to an increased risk of therapeutic failure. And now we look into the third um, patient group on the other end of the spectrum, where um, we refer to this patient as poor metabolizer. And in this group of patients, their body uh, metabolize or process the medication at a much slower rate. And this can lead to an increased accumulation of the medication in their body because they're not processing them as fast. And that can lead to toxicity, increased incidence of adverse effects, and potentially can be dangerous to the patient. So now that we have talked about the impact of genetic variation, what does that have to do with SIP enzymes? 
Well, um, genetic variation or our gene contain information to make these enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing the medication that we take. Um, a majority of our medication that we take are metabolized by a family of enzymes known as coenzyme P450 or CYP enzyme for short. And of all of the CYP enzymes that we know of, there are four major CYP enzymes that are responsible for over 70 to 75% of drug metabolism. And these are CYP3A4, CYP2D6, CYP2C19, and CYP2C9. And when we're looking at antidepressant medications specifically, um, they still are metabolized by a lot of those four, but what we want to focus on are CYP2D6 and CYP2C19, which are what we um, focus on the most for our literature for our study. Thank you, Corwin. So, Delaney, what impact does pharmacogenomics have on medication selection for the management of depression? What would you suggest? I mean, how much time do we have? As previously touched upon, every individual tends to metabolize and respond to each particular medication in a very unique way. The difference when analyzing therapeutic response to medications utilized for mental health disorders really is time. Mental health disorder treatment is not one size fits all. We know that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are first line for many depressive and anxiety disorders, can take from four to six weeks to show efficacy, and that's after we've gotten someone to their ideal dose. For those who are struggling and seek help, the timeline of waiting to feel better can ultimately lead to therapy failure, and the process of trialing multiple medications without seeing a positive outcome or change can lead to distrust not only in their healthcare provider, but in medication therapy as a whole for mental health conditions. When you consider that failure could result in self-harm or even worse, suicide for some of these patients, I think the impact of pharmacogenomics in the treatment of depression speaks for itself as perfectly evidenced by the improved outcomes in the VA clinical study, which Dr. Barrett briefly touched on. By obtaining an understanding how an individual's genetic makeup will impact their likely response to an SSRI, we are shifting the management of mental health disorders from less of a trial and error standpoint to a more targeted method backed by individualized pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic principles. Yay, science! Although we cannot assure someone that a medication selection will undoubtedly work 100%, we are increasing the likelihood of a positive response. For example, commonly prescribed SSRIs are metabolized primarily by enzymes CYP2D6, CYP2C19, and of course, the star of the medication metabolization show, CYP3A4. For individuals who are poor, rapid, or ultra-rapid metabolizers, the outcomes from a typical starting dose of something like, let's say, citalopram or Celexa, compared to another medication in the same class, something like sertraline, Zoloft, can vary drastically. Citalopram is extensively metabolized by CYP2C19, thus the recommendation for ultra-rapid phenotypes is to use an alternative therapy due to low plasma concentrations and increased risk for poor response. Conversely, sertraline is not metabolized to the same extent by CYP2C19 with recommendation to initiate therapy at a normal starting dose. Once you start to consider all other factors such as age, comorbidities, concurrent medications, ethnicity, etc., the question really should be why wouldn't we want to equip ourselves and our patients with something as definitive as DNA proof for which medication will have the most desirable pharmacodynamic profile resulting in optimized therapeutic selection outcomes and potentially saving lives. Thank you, Delaney. You made that so clear. So we all also know that patients sometimes like to use different approaches to managing their mental health. 
What considerations should be made for commonly used substances like nicotine and alcohol in regards to these medications? Mary, Seth, can you maybe give us some guidance? Gladly. So these substances are commonly used by many, and although they are not medications, they can alter how medications are processed in our body. It is important to know how this could potentially decrease the effectiveness of medications, as well as enhance the risk of certain adverse events. So starting with nicotine, regardless of the route of administration, nicotine can inhibit or induce different uh, metabolic enzymes, including leucuronidation enzymes, as well as many of the CYP enzymes, as were mentioned previously, uh, when smoked specifically uh, CYP1A2 and CYP2B6, for instance. Nicotine can impact either phase of drug metabolism, and this can lead to significant changes in the expected activity of medications. Based on these changes in metabolism, there could be an accumulation of medication in the body, increasing the likelihood of an adverse reaction, or the medication could be cleared too quickly, which would result in a decreased therapeutic effect. In terms of alcohol use, um, alcohol use can have specific metabolic interactions as well as alter other biological processes that indirectly impact drug metabolism. Alcohol has known impacts via CYF2E1, including upregulation of these enzymes with long-term alcohol use. Chronic alcohol use can lead to changes in CYF enzyme expression as well as the body's ability to retain protein-bound drugs. Um, many of these drugs are meant to to stay bound to these proteins. With long-term alcohol use, liver can be damaged and less of these proteins are produced. This could potentially result in an increased clearance of highly protein-bound drugs, as well as increased serum concentrations, and can also cause alterations of drug distribution in tissues um, and the apparent volume of distribution. Thank you, Seth and Mary. I really appreciate that practical guidance. We know that so many of our kind of patients and customer owners utilize kind of, you know, commercially available substances to kind of self-medicate. So that knowledge is very helpful. Well, we've had a lot to learn today. Um, and thank you all um, for taking the time. I want to thank Dr. Barrett and all of our students at Idaho State University for joining us today and helping to really kind of provide us some information about kind of the considerations for mental health pharmacogenomics. If you haven't before, I encourage you also to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, and more. And thanks again for joining us for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. And if you enjoyed this topic, please subscribe to ASHP's official podcast for more great content. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time.